Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals from the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The word of the Lord. All right, so last week, uh, we finished up um, our study of Matthew that, that took us from right, boom, we got the, the Matthew birth story, and then it took us up through the first four months, first full four months of the year. So we ended, we, we, we left off right where Matthew left off, and, and that was with the Great Commission, with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now, back in 1960, uh, a, a Harvard, Harvard Business School professor named Theodore Levitt wrote an article that has become a, a kind of classic in the genre. If you're going for your MBA, this is like one of those articles that you should have read. So I'm going to ask Gus and uh, Drew if this is true. And you already finished, so um, we'll see what happened. But this was a classic uh, article in the business world called Marketing Myopia. And in it, he asked this question. He, he looked at all of these huge companies that had failed, um, but at, at one point been in a dominant position in their market. And he said what they had lost sight of was this question, or never asked themselves this question, what business are you really in? And so he gave examples of, of companies like, you know, the big railroad monopolies, right? They thought, what business are we really in? Well, we're in the railroad business. But he said, no, no, no. You know, and you think about it, they were these large monopolies, they had tons of resources they could have invested, but they were totally usurped by the automobile industry because they thought they were in the railroad business, not the transportation business, or Eastman Kodak, right? They thought they were in the film or the camera business, not the image business. And so this very well-positioned company, you know, is now sort of an afterthought. And so Jesus' Great Commission helps us answer that question, what business is the church really in? We're not in the worship service business, though I love worship services. We're not in the sermon delivery business, though I love delivering sermons. We're not in the small group business, though, or life group business, though I love my life group, or even the do-gooder business, which we love to do good. If we read Matthew 28, then we see that, that the church... At least one core component of the business we're in is the disciple-making business. Which, okay, it's good to know what business you're in. But the question then is, well, what does that really mean for us today? How do we do that? How do we know what to do? And so um, our, one of our answers as a congregation is we hire an associate pastor for uh, discipleship, Matt Anderson. And we say, Matt, you figure that out for us. And he's working on that. And, and it's really good <laughs> and helpful. And we appreciate that. He is. He's working uh, really hard on that, but it's not just up to Matt. I see hiring him as, as ref, you know, bringing him on board as it's reflective of that value, and he's going to help us together as a congregation as we pray and study scripture and think theologically and collectively discern how is the Holy Spirit moving in our midst and directing us in this time and place to be about this disciple-making business. And so over the next several weeks as a congregation, 
we're going to be focusing on discipleship essentials, right? What does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus Christ? And we're going to do this through a sermon series that is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Now, the, the, the ultimate source of the title for this sermon series, it comes from an unlikely place. It comes from, of all people, uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous German uh, skeptic from the late 19th century, and of all his works, it comes from his most famous, one of his most famous, Beyond Good and Evil, which is this collection of Nietzsche's aphorisms. And in Aphorism 188, he is reflecting on the irony from the fact that the freedom that most of us identify, and many of us associate with like the creative arts, he says the artist who is most free, he says that actually the people who we think are most free have actually become that way as the result of adhering to a very strict set of rules and have cultivated virtues specific to their craft. And so the freest people are actually those who have been most successfully mastered by the requisite constraints. And on this he says, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there be a long obedience in the same direction there thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. So a life worth living is the result of a long obedience in the same direction. And then the late Presbyterian minister and pastoral theologian, uh, Eugene Peterson, most famous for the message, paraphrase of the Bible, he took this from and he saw it as an apt description of what a life of discipleship means in an instant society. That's, that, that's the title of the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, subtitle, Discipleship in an Instant Society. And in it, he, he turned to Psalms 120 through 134, which are known in the Bible, this collection, they're set aside, these 15, they're called, they're called Psalms of Ascent. And he uses them to reflect on the major, major themes of being a disciple. And so we're going to follow Peterson through these Psalms. We're going to be reflecting on scripture itself, but we're going to let Peterson be our guide. It's not just going to be a bunch of block quotes of Peterson, but I can't deny that he's going to be a dominant voice, but he's worth listening to on this. But first, just a word about the, these Psalms of Ascent themselves. And so these 15 Psalms, they're classified, they're set aside as this sort of little hymn book within the Psalms, and they're called Pilgrim Songs. And these were the songs that were sung by the faithful as they were making one of the three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the great festivals of the faith. There's the Passover, which we just got past. And then there was the festival of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're called Psalms of Ascent because all roads, when you go to Jerusalem, you know, you're going from lower, sort of the topography is lower, and you're going up. You're literally ascending to Zion. And so it's this uphill climb. And so pilgrimage and ascent, they're these potent and powerful metaphors for discipleship. Because as God's people, we're pilgrims. We're always on the way. We're always in process. We're never a finished product. We're never, ever at our destination. And ascending, we're always on our way up, always journeying toward God, towards greater degrees of Christ-likeness and maturity and holiness. And Peterson, he contrasts a, a pilgrim mentality with a tourist mentality. And he says one of the great challenges for the church when he was writing in the late 20th century, and probably still holds true today, he says is that we're, we're filled with religious tourists and we're cultivating religious tourists rather than pilgrims. 
And so here's a question I just want you to, to think about, and you could be prepared to answer this out loud in a moment, but, but I want you to actually think about it no matter what. Is what's the difference between a pilgrim and a tourist? Because uh, both are travelers, both are on a journey, both are, are, are away from home, so why aren't these synonymous? What sets these two categories of traveler apart? So I'll give you 10 seconds to think before asking anyone to blurt out an answer. So by now you should have been able to formulate a coherent and well-thought-out distinction between these two principles based on a prompt that you received about 20 seconds ago. I expect nothing less from this congregation. We are a sharp group of people. Um, no doubt. So, does anyone have any thoughts? What's the difference between a, a, a tourist? Oh, yes, forest. Okay. Oh my gosh, it's like you read, it's like you read my sermon notes off the page. He's smart. He's very smart. That's good. So, greater purpose versus like just going there for themselves or for entertainment. That is beautiful. Anyone else have any thoughts on the distinction? Rebecca. Okay, so one's going to a place for further exploration. One is just going to explore. It's more sort of open. Okay. John. Okay, all right. So Rick Steves versus Lonely Planet or the what guide? The Green Guide. The Green Guide. I, we'll talk later. I know Rick Steves, but... <laughs> Oh, uh, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So a pilgrim adds something to the place which they're going. The tourist takes tchotchkes or photographs or whatever. This is good. Well, thank you all for, for, for sharing. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a distinction. There is a difference. And, and like a pilgrimage is, is this... You know, and there's nothing wrong with being a tourist. In a time and place, we all, I mean, probably more of us need vacations or need to get away or just to do things for ourselves. There's definitely a time and a place for that. And as Americans, we work really, really hard, and we're not good at taking vacations. We're not always good at being tourists. But it's not going to do for uh, uh, an understanding of what it means to live as a disciple. Because discipleship is not about going somewhere for yourself. It's about, it's about cultivating the soul. Right? It's about doing something for God to be shaped into the kind of person that God wants us to be. And so this, a pilgrimage is, is going somewhere for a higher purpose. And not just going out into the world, but, but also going up to the heavens. And so a pilgrimage is a journey to a sacred place for a sacred purpose. Now, probably few of us have been on what we would consider like a, a true pilgrimage you know, to a sacred place. Um, uh, but we use it kind of colloquially in a way that I think captures uh, the essence of what it is. Think of the pilgrimages you've maybe gone on back to like the old family home or the old family farm. That's a pilgrimage of sorts, right? Reconnecting with your roots or, or going back to a, a, a reunion, family reunion, high school reunion. Those can be like, like a pilgrimage. 
For me, the times that I've gotten to go back to, to Princeton, New Jersey, I have to make a pilgrimage when I go there. Going to that place is sort of a pilgrimage, but there's an even deeper pilgrimage embedded within that, and that's going to Hoagie Haven to get the fat lady a cheesesteak that is topped with mozzarella sticks and french fries. And, and like, because you go to a sacred place and you partake of a sacred meal. It's very, you know, it's like Christian theology right there, 101, you know? And, 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 and so uh, when I go back there, I'm reminded of this place and what it's meant in my life and, and my own call to the, to the pastorate and what all that theological education was really for. And so in the context of discipleship, right, we're pilgrims, we're on our way to God. That's where we want to go. And, and we get there, how do we get there? We get there by following the leader, Jesus, and who promised, he says, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you, and, and, and behold, I am with you always. The very last words of Matthew's gospel, behold, I am with you, with you always, to the end of the age. And so we're going to read these Psalms of Ascent as, as songs for our journey to see how they cultivate in us habits of life, habits of the heart needed for a life of discipleship, for following Jesus on the often difficult road of life. Now, when Peterson first wrote this book, it was 1980. Um, I wasn't even born at this point in time. And, and, he, and he said that, that, you know, being a pastor, trying to do discipleship in late 20th century American culture was hard because he said everyone was in a hurry. Folks wanted instant results. They wanted to hear something new and experience something fresh and experience transformation, you know, snap your fingers instantaneously. And that's 1980, and I think we're probably, we probably haven't slowed down as a culture. That's probably still true today. But I think that if Peterson were to rewrite this today, I think there's a shift that he would have to take note of that's changed in our culture that's made a long obedience particularly difficult for us. And it's not so much that we're, we're in a hurry. It's that we're in this constant state of being distracted. Right? We are addicted to things that keep us perpetually diverted. Right? The people who, who have made these devices that we, we carry around or even rare, wear on our wrists in some instances, they have figured out our brains in such a way to provide us with these constant little dopamine hits that just keep us going back, keep us checking, keep us distracted. And so we spend hours just focused on these things. And, 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 and we've become addicted to what we might call the shallow Shallow ways of thinking, shallow ways of being in the world, this way of, of, of basically constantly we're in the state of distraction or, or being diverted. And so when we're in the shallow place, we can only engage in cognitively unchallenging tasks, which is like swiping or scrolling or staring. I find myself even, it's harder for me to like sit down and read a book or an article or follow a complex argument. And through uh, uh, Derek, our own Derek Reimer, thank you for this, I, I've discovered this concept of deep work, a phrase that was coined by the author Cal Newport. And Newport's argument is that so many of us are in a state of constant distraction that we can't do deep work anymore, which is focusing on cognitively demanding tasks. And so deep work is what happens when you're, you're locked in, you're in flow, like everything else that's going on in the world. You're, 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 it vanishes, it, it drifts away. But he says, you know, we, we, we are unable to get locked in because we get a push notification or a little red badge pops up clamoring for us to make it go away. 
And if anything is deep work, right? If anything can't be engaged in in a shallow way, that's discipleship. That's following Jesus. And so in order to get out of being shallow, we're going to have to maybe learn to cultivate one of the most important rules in our culture for discipleship, discipleship, to carve out significant time where we ruthlessly eliminate distraction. And I'm, I'm, I'm holding up the mirror as I'm preaching this sermon because I find myself prey to constant and consistent distraction. Now, I think all of us will go, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds good. I would like to not be so distracted anymore, but I can't. That's unrealistic. It's too hard. And this brings us at last, finally, to Psalm 120, the first of, of these Psalms of Ascent, which outlines for us the very first step on the road of the discipleship, and that is repentance. Repentance. Because we find ourselves saying those things, repeating those things, saying, I just can't. The first step is repentance. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming the good news. And the the essence of the good news is this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so repentance for Jesus is at the heart of good news. We hear repent. We hear repentance. We think that's a bad news word. That's like I've done something wrong word. You know, for us, repentance means feeling bad because we've done something wrong. And that's part of it, but not all of it. In, in Jesus' first language, Aramaic, the word for repentance is a word that literally means it's an action word. It literally means turn around. Go in another direction. You've been walking this way, well, it's time to go that way. That's repentance, the act of turning around to go in another direction. So when we think of it that way, repentance isn't primarily about feeling bad. It's about getting up turning around and deciding that we're going to go in another direction because the way we've been doing things and the way we've been working isn't working actually anymore. And so Psalm 120, it's, it's this cry for help from someone who's stuck. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, deliver me. And at the end, it says, I want to talk about peace, but they say war. So distress, war, I mean, this is not exactly what we think of as the most promising start of this songbook for someone who's on a pilgrimage journey, but it's real. And it's fitting because when we look at at verse 2, we see what the psalmist's problem is. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. See, the problem for the psalmist and the reason they want to get up and get started in the first place is, is is that he's living in a land that's filled with lies, that's far away from where he's supposed to be, far away from God. Verse 5 says, I I sojourn in Meshech, and I I dwell in the tents of Kedar. And those are just weird Bible words, you know, for places that we have no idea where they are or what they represent or stand for. But just know that uh, Meshech is modern-day Turkey, and Kedar is in Jordan or Saudi Arabia. And so these are like sort of polar opposite places of where you could be. I guess from your perspective, it'd be like this. Polar opposite places from where you could be from Israel. And they were not just places that were far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, but they were also people who were hostile to the Israelites. And so you're in a place that's far away. You're in a, in a, in a cultural environment that's hostile to, to following God. And so the predicament faced by the psalmist is that he wasn't where he should be, Because he's living in the land of lies, living in a land of conflict, what the Christian tradition has called the world. 
And in Christian theology, the, the world is existence without reference to God. It's the world filled with the beginning and end of the psalm, lies and war, deceit and, and, and enmity, falsehood and conflict. And, and the great lie that this world tells us is that, well, you've just got to adapt yourself to these circumstances. You've got to be realistic about this because this is just the way it is. So then there's the lie that the way things are now are just the way they're always going to be. And so you have to live. You have to live. You have no choice. You have to live in this perpetual state of distraction. And you always need to be stimulated and agitated. The shallow feeds into these lies. An oversimplified world. And in an oversimplified world, we are tempted to oversimplify the circles we draw around who's our people and not our people. And I think we see this playing out all the time in our culture, right? So the, the problems faced by our world are complex. But the simple solution in, in, in the shallow world is, well, if we can just get the right result in the next election, then things are going to be better. And it's not just, well, I'm right and you're wrong, which, of course, if you think, we should all think we're right in the positions we hold. Otherwise, we should change them to other ones. But it's not just I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm right and you're bad. You're morally corrupt, evil, Nazis, you know, pinko commies. The shallow is the world of white hats versus black hats, you know, goodies versus baddies, virtue versus vice. And so we see the world the way that it is, and when we're seeing it that way, in those simplistic ways, we're seeing it through the lens of the lie, through the lens of what the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all in his classic work, The Leviathan. He said, that's the natural state of humankind if there isn't some you know, uh, powerful state to keep people in check through coercive force. And so repentance starts with getting fed up with, sick to death of the lies. Getting fed up with continuing to live in the world as it's construed that way, this way that's been keeping you far away from God. Peterson says, a, a person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. I love that. You've got to get fed up with the ways of this world before you can cultivate an appetite for a different world, a world of grace. He, he says, Psalm 20 is the song of such a person, sick with the lies and crippled with the hate, a person doubled up in pain over what is going on in the world, but it's not a mere outcry. It's not just going, I'm sick of this. It's, it's a pain that penetrates through despair and stimulates a new beginning, a journey to God that becomes a life of peace. Christian consciousness begins in the painful realization that what we had assumed was the truth is in fact a lie. The prayer is immediate. Deliver me from the liars, God. They smile so sweetly, but lie through their teeth. Rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire, from the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy, from the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality, from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live long, happily, and successfully, from the lies of religionists who heal the wounds of this people lightly, from the lies of moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of captain of my fate from the lies of pastors who get rid of God's command so we're not convenienced in following the religious fashions. Welcome back, kids. Rescue me is the prayer from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ, 
who is wise in the ways of the world and ignores the movement of the Spirit. The lies seem so impeccably factual. They seem to contain no errors, no distortions or falsified data, but they are lies all the same because they claim to tell us of who we are and omit everything about our origin God and our destiny in God. They talk about the world without telling us that God made it. They tell us about our bodies without telling us that they are temples of the Holy Spirit. They instruct us in love without telling us about the God who loves us and gave himself for us. So a long obedience in the same direction starts with getting fed up, so fed up with the world that we get motivated to move, to change location, to do something, go somewhere. And that somewhere we're going is to God, and the way we're going to get there is following Jesus. So the problem is that the world is so filled with lies that we think are true and and conflict that we think is going to be perpetual. But the solution is so simple. It's right there in front of our faces. The psalmist says, I cried out to who? I cried out to the Lord. Then I prayed, deliver me who? I prayed to the Lord. And so repentance also starts with recognizing that we don't have the capacity within ourselves to save ourselves or to fix everything that's broken in us or the world, and so we need God. So repentance means turning around, stop walking away from God, stop walking, start walking toward him, and how do we do that? And this psalm outlines three simple ways. In verses one to two, we see it's prayer. I cried out to the Lord. Repentance starts with prayer. The most simple prayer we see in scripture is help. I need some help. I'm not satisfied with with how my life is going. I'm not satisfied with how this world is. God, I need your help. We need your help. And after repentance, we see in verses three through four, it means leaving vengeance to God. Letting go of that. It's not saying that we deny the existence of evil or injustice. It just means that we give up pursuing vengeance. And so using the tools of this world that we think can fix the problem to only make it worse and perpetuate it. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist says, listen, there's going to be a judgment. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with the glowing coals of the broom tree. Judgment is coming, but it's not coming from the psalmist. They will be hoisted on their own petard. And so we can get beyond the business of settling scores and move on to the business of following Jesus who will make things right. And lastly, in verses 5 through 7, there's this call to endure. So we pray, we leave vengeance aside, and we endure, we persist. Because we know that this pilgrimage will be long and it will not be easy. It will be filled with fits and starts. Lots of times feel like maybe we've gotten lost or, or we've been abandoned, but we haven't. The Easter hope, the Easter faith, the Easter claim of the church is that despite appearances to the contrary, God will win. And so what do we have to do? Be faithful. Being a disciple means being patient, enduring, staying the course in a world that's constantly telling us that we're stupid for doing that. and We should give up and rush back into its arms. But that too is a lie. Now I'm going to give the last word to Peterson. Psalm 120 is the decision to take one way over and against another. It's the turning point marking the transition from a dreamy nostalgia for a better life to a rugged pilgrimage of discipleship in faith. From complaining about how bad things are to pursuing all things good. This decision is said and sung on every continent in every language. The decision has been realized in every sort of life in every century in the long history of humankind. 
The decision is quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, announced from thousands of Christian pulpits all over the world each Sunday morning. The decision is witnessed by millions in homes, factories, schools, businesses, offices, and fields every day of every week. The people who make the decision and take delight in it are the people called Christians. And so the first question for discipleship that leads to repentance is this. Are, are you fed up? Fed up with the lies? F- fed up with the, the pointless conflict? Good. Me too. So let's get going and follow Jesus who on this, this pilgrimage journey is the way, the truth, and the life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.